The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Jess. Well, yeah, grab a Bible, go to Psalm 73. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight, Psalm 73. I told uh, Jacob and Jess before this that I feel like I need a cast too. I feel a little left out. That is cast. I asked them if I could make that. They said it wasn't mean, okay? Don't, don't be that way. Psalm 73. Uh, Lord, pray for us, and then let's, uh, let's get into God's word together, shall we? God, thank you once again for tonight. God, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, yeah, be with your people. Lord, thanks for the chance to, to get to sing to and about you. God, thanks for your word. God, I pray that as we think about uh, Psalm 73 and as we think about jealousy and envy, Lord, and as, as we think about the, the dark crevices of our heart, God, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us wisdom. God, I pray that you would give us grace from you and help us to see what it is that you need us to see. Lord, you promise that when your word is preached and proclaimed and read, it does not return empty or void, Lord. And so we want to trust you with that promise that you will bear much fruit in your people. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. 
Amen. Psalm 73, uh, before we get there, just as a way of reminder, we are spending the second half of our series, The Emotionally Healthy Church, thinking about uh, these kind of specific emotions that plague us as a society. And so if you weren't here, we spent the first half of the series kind of setting up a framework for how to move forward into emotional health and maturity. And we're spending the back half of the series talking about some of these specific emotions. And last week, Garrison talked about fear and anxiety. It was really good if you didn't uh, catch it, I'd, I'd encourage you to check out the podcast or the video. But this week, I want to talk to us about the ideas of jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy. To be honest, I feel like I got a crash course on this this weekend. So we uh, spent the holiday weekend in Lake Lure. It was our family and then my wife's sister's family. And between the two families, we have six kids under four. And so we spent most of the weekend not relaxing at the lake like you would anticipate us doing on the holiday, but instead playing share police. Right? And it was so fascinating thinking about, okay, I got to preach on jealousy and envy here this Sunday, and just watching that from a very early age, you don't have to teach the human heart to want something that someone else has. Like automatically, it was like they had three cars and there were four kids that were all trying to share the three cars and it was just not going well for them. They all wanted the one that the other one had. And as I was thinking about Psalm 73 and this sermon and all of that, I realized, at least in my own heart, that I'm really not all that better at not being jealous or envious. I just get better at hiding it as an adult. Really, all of us are plagued by this struggle, this temptation to look at what somebody else has and go, man, if only, if only I had what they had, if only I had who they had. So as we kind of get ready into Psalm 73, let me kind of lay some groundwork for us. Here's how I would define this kind of emotion of jealousy, envy, coveting, to use the language of the scriptures. Here's how I would define it for us. Envy is a corrosive desire to have something that does not belong to you. Envy is a corrosive desire to have something that does not belong to you. It's a yearning towards something, a longing for what someone else possesses that you do not have. It's that pit in your stomach when you hear about that person you're interested in going on a date or hanging out with somebody else. Envy is that anger you feel when that coworker got the promotion or the raise or the, the validation that you felt like you deserved. Envy is that cynicism or that bitterness that seems to rise up when someone talks about that house they just bought or the vacation they just took or that special new toy that they just got that you're not able to afford. And envy is what God has in mind in the 10th commandment of Exodus chapter 20. So he says to his people in Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet, which is desire or be jealous of or be envious of your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So God, as he's laying out this foundation for how his people are supposed to live, he tells them, hey, if it belongs to your neighbor, it's your neighbor's. Don't be envious of that. Don't be jealous of that. Don't covet or long for or desire that. Be good with what you have. If that's your neighbor's, let it be your neighbor's. Envy is a corrosive desire to have something that does not belong to you. Now, I say corrosive because I think envy is one of those things the Bible is very clear on the dangers of that we often take lightly. 
right? It's kind of a joke. It's kind of like a ha-ha, I'm jealous type of deal. But envy in the scriptures is seen as this enemy to the people of God, their own health, the health of their relationships, the health of their walk with the Lord. I'll give you two examples. Proverbs 14, 30 says this. It says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. A heart at peace, a heart of contentment gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Or think about James 3.16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, meaning fighting within our relationships, and every vile practice, every sin imaginable. So the Bible says there's a way in which jealousy just kind of makes everything within us and around us break down and corrode. This is exactly what Psalm 73 is going to speak to today. So I kind of want to just walk through the text, and I want to see some of the dangers that Asaph, the author of this psalm, is going to lay out for us with the emotionally unhealthiness of envy. So Psalm 73, we'll start in verse 1. This is written by Asaph. It's one of the few that's not written by King David. Asaph's like an Old Testament worship leader. He's writing a song that the people of God would have sang together. And this is what he says, Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. All right, verse 1 is hugely important. We're going to come back to it at the end. So underline it, mark it, star it, highlighter it, just look at it and think about it. We'll get back to it at the end. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, pause. This is such a beautiful example of everything we talked about in the first couple weeks of this series, right? Where we said, hey, when you're feeling unhealthy emotions, the goal is not to stuff it or ignore it or to blame shift or to to convince yourself, whatever, it's fine. ASAP is this beautiful example where he says, hey, I was slipping. Like, my feet were stumbling. I was looking left and right, and everybody seemed to be doing awesome but me, and I was envious, and it was messing up my life. He takes off the false self. He's honest with the Lord, with himself, with other people. Here's what's actually going on in my heart. Keep reading. See what he's envious over. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I'm going to let that sit for a second. Verse five. Oh, come on, holiday weekend. Y'all got to be with me. Let's go. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. I have no idea what that means. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And then here's kind of his summary phrase of everything he just said. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So Asaph's looking to the left and he's looking to the right and he's envious. And he tells us why. He says, these people, they've got no pain. Their bodies are on point. They're fat and sleek, whatever that means. They don't have any troubles or problems like anyone else. They're always relaxed. They're always at ease. Their bank accounts just keep getting bigger and bigger. And to make it all worse, they keep boasting about how awesome their life is. Sound like anybody you know? Or maybe anybody you're jealous of? This is not what we do with our envy. 
Is this not the pull of sinful temptation on our hearts where we look to the left and we look to the right and you're like, they're doing great, they're doing great, they're doing great. Their job is great, their kids are great, their marriage is great, their body's great. Cool, right? Like, is everybody else doing good but me? Is everyone else have a good life and prospering except for me? Now, here's the problem. I think when we get to this point in our lives, which we're being honest, I think we all do, the point where Asaph is at, we usually do a couple of things in our culture. Option number one, as I said earlier, is to make a joke about it, right? It might sound something like, oh, you got to Disney World? I'm super, you got to go to Disney World? I'm super jealous. When really we are, we just are like, I don't want to talk about it. Or we stew in it. Like we're envious of what somebody else has and we just kind of let it sit there. We don't talk about it. We don't confess it. We don't bring it up. We just slowly let it start to create quiet resentment in our hearts. For some of us, when we're envious, we become ultra competitive, Oh, I see what you have. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to win. I'm going to have more. I'm going to have better. My life is going to go better than yours. But in reality, and I think we all know this, none of those are good options. Envy is corrosive. It's, it's dangerous. It's damaging to our own health, emotionally and spiritually, to our relational health, to our healthy relationship with the Lord. And I think there's a few reasons why that is, which is talked about here in the psalm. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the danger of envy. I got three. We'll hit them fairly quick. Number one, the dangers of envy. Number one, envy lives in unreality. Envy lives in unreality. One of my goals for the 11 weeks of this series is just to convince you that you should stop living in this state of unreality. So many things I think in my own life could be solved if I was just willing to live in reality. Because what happens in envy is we start to look at our life a certain way and the lives of others a certain way. And chances are neither of them are actually real. Chances are neither of them are actually what is happening. One commentator on this passage talks about uh, the depth at which Asaph goes into the lives of the wicked in verses 4 through 12, and they say there's no other option but for it to be hyperbole because Asaph is so envious, he's just creating illusions of how awesome the wicked's lives are. That's why he has that kind of summary in verse 12 where he's like, hey, I don't have any other way to put it. These are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and their life is perfect, and they increase in riches. Like He just is so blinded living in unreality. When the reality is Asaph. It's just not true, man. Like there's no way in the reality of a broken world that 100% of these people's lives are flawless, that they're perfect, that they're everything you think they are. That's true for us as well. Our perception of that other person's life, I'm just going to guarantee you 100%, it's not real. Our perception of what somebody else has or what somebody else is able to do, our reality, our pressing into, okay, this is what they look like on Instagram. This is what it looks like when they tell me how awesome their life is. It's just not always real. I love the way uh, Monica Furlong, she was a political activist in the early 1900s. She talks about it this way. She says, if envy was not such a tearing thing to feel, it would be the most comic of sins. It is usually, if not always, based on a complete misunderstanding of another person's situation. How true is that? How true is it, man, that our envy is just based off a complete misunderstanding of another person's situation? How many times do we get jealous because we compare our totality of real life to somebody else's highlight reel? Right? And so we live the frustrating reality of the weekend. Listen, uh, my wife's Instagram is going to look awesome after this weekend. It's just going to look good. Like we were at the beach, at the lake, and it was awesome, surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was great, and there were cute kids all around us. It was awesome. You know what it won't tell you? That most of the kids were sick. 
and that most of the kids cried at 10 p.m. every night because they couldn't share a room well together. It's not going to tell you about the terrible car ride home that we had this morning at 9 a.m. It's not going to tell you any of that. But what happens is we get on Instagram and we go, man, their life looks awesome. And we're comparing their highlight reel to our reality. And envy causes us to live in a state of unreality. But here's the deal. That's ultimately not helpful if we just end there. All right, it's not helpful to say, hey, I know you're envious, but don't worry, their life is probably hard too. Like that's not the gospel hope for us in this. And so we got to keep going. A few more reasons why envy is dangerous. Number two, envy keeps us from loving others. Envy keeps us from loving others. You'll notice Asaph several times in the passage calls them the wicked. It's just the reality of what the Old Testament would often call people who don't follow God. And so he's looking out and he's seeing these people who don't follow God and his posture is not one of brokenheartedness. His posture is not one towards, let me pray for them, let me show them the gospel, let me tell them about this God who the Israelites worship, let us bring them into worship of God, let's be a blessing to them as they were called to be in Genesis 12. Instead, he's, he's envious, and his envy has corrupted his ability to love them, because here's what happens with us in our envy. Romans 12, 15, here's what it says. It's the call of, of so much of the Christian life of relationship. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So you see, the invitation of the scriptures is to celebrate others' victories and to grieve others' pain. What happens in envy is that we flip it. We celebrate others' pain and we grieve others' victories. So the call of Romans 12, 15 is, hey, when others are rejoicing, rejoice with them celebrate with them. When somebody else gets that promotion, celebrate with them. When somebody else has the engagement, celebrate with them. When somebody else has the marriage or the kids, celebrate with them and grieve with those who grieve. When somebody else walks through the heartache of loss, grieve with them. When somebody else experiences the burden of heartbreak, grieve with them. When somebody else loses the job, step in and grieve with them. And yet envy says we can't actually do that. Instead, we celebrate when they hurt and when they lose and we grieve when they win. We can't love because love is about sacrifice. Love is about saying, no, I'm going to actually take the hit so that your life is better. My, my life's going to be worse so that you will flourish. Uh, my life is going to be harder so that you will know Jesus more. But envy turns it on its head and says, no, I want you to diminish and I want to flourish instead. So envy keeps us from loving others. But the third and, and the most dangerous part of our envy, and this is what I want to spend the rest of our time in, it comes in verse 13. Asaph writes, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So Old Testament scholars talk about this language where he says, I've washed my hands in innocence. It's worship, it's spiritual practices language. So he's talking about this practice where they would enter into the temple to worship God and they would wash their hands as kind of this physical symbol of a spiritual reality that God was washing them clean from their sins because of his goodness and his love and his kindness. And so what he's saying is, hey, I was looking left to right. Everyone was doing awesome except for me. I was following Jesus and not prospering. These folks were the wicked. They're not following God, and they are prospering. And so maybe it's in vain that I've done any of this Jesus stuff in the first place. And that leads to number three. Envy pulls us away from God. Envy pulls us away from God. One of the struggles of the human heart from the very beginning of history has been to want and long for what God and his sovereignty has withheld from us. 
All right, so think about all the way back, right? Genesis 3. God gives them one no command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil shows up in the form of a snake, and what does he say? Surely God's withholding from you, right? Like, surely he wants, he doesn't want what's best for you. Surely he's keeping something good from you, right? This lie from the very beginning of human history has been, can you actually trust that God wants your good? It's been the lie, and it courses throughout human history, and it courses throughout our envy. See what they have? See what God has given them? See the ways they're prospering? See the ways they're flourishing? Isn't it in vain you worshiped God? Isn't he withholding from you? Why would you keep worshiping God if he does not give you the desires that you long for so much? This is the pull on Asaph. Surely it's in vain that I've washed my hands in innocence. Surely it's vain that I've worshiped God. Surely it's in vain that I've done all of this stuff to try to follow him. And this temptation, the belief that God is withholding from us, this is at the core of all of our envy. So yes, Asaph is looking left and right, right? His envy is horizontally provoked, like we talked about last week. It is drawn out of him by these people he sees that are prospering and he is not. And yet there's a deeper reality. What's actually going on in Asaph's heart is that he's forgotten verse 1. Remember verse 1, look back at it. Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph's envy is ultimately not about the people around him flourishing. It's ultimately about his forgetfulness that God is good to those who love him. So last week, we said that fear and anxiety has this underworking belief that, that says, I'm not sure God will be good in the future, right? That's, that's kind of this underlying belief with fear and anxiety that we're just, I'm not sure God's going to show up. I'm not sure he's going to be good. There's good things to care about. I'm worried about how it's going to go in the future. I'm not sure God will be good in the future. Envy is similar, but a little bit different. Envy says, I am sure God has been good just to someone or anyone else besides me. That's at the core of our envy. No, I know God's good. He's just good to my neighbor. Oh, no, I know God provides. He just provides for the guy in my community group. Oh, no, I am sure that the Lord is is good, and he provides all of my needs, just not mine like that person's. Yeah, like I am sure that the Lord is kind, and he cares for me, and he cares for people, and he loves people. He's just not doing that for me. So it's not just that God hasn't fulfilled my desire, but he's also, according to my unreality that I'm living in, fulfilled the desires of everyone else that I have to now watch celebrate the good things they have that I don't have. That's at the core of our envy. I'm sure God has been good just to someone or anyone else besides me. So the question becomes about our envy is a question of trust. Do we trust that God is good, not just generically, not just in a theological sense, not just according to the scriptures, but do we believe God is good to us? A verse the Lord keeps pulling me back to uh, over the course of the past six months, all of, all of 2022. If you've had a conversation with me, if we've talked at all, I've probably brought up this verse to you, so this is going to be no surprise. Uh, Psalm 34, this is David, and he says this. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But notice this. This is the key line. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Man, I, I wish I had that kind of trust in the Lord. Like I, 
I wish that I could say with confidence like David does, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I wish I had a prayer life that said, Lord, I love you and I trust you. And if it would be good for me, I would have it. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so you're still good, even though I don't. I want to trust his sovereignty more. I want to trust his providence more. This continual thing I've been going back to, and really a lot of the, the most of the lows of the past six months has been, Lord, those who seek you lack no good thing. So you know, I'm praying about this passage, and I'm praying about jealousy and envy, and I'm thinking about, man, what does emotional health look like for us as a church? I think it's a look like trust that Psalm 34 is true. That Psalm 3410 isn't just a good idea from David. That it's not just a theological concept. That man, in our prayer life, we would be able to say, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Because envy, though horizontally provoked, is a reflection of our relationship with God and our trust that that is true. And that's why it makes so much sense what Asaph does next. Keep going in the Psalms. Skip down to verse 16. If you don't get that part, if you don't get, okay, envy is about my relationship with God, then this is going to make no sense what his solution is. Look at it. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's like, I was thinking about this envy that I had, and I was thinking about how everybody around me prospers but me, and I just got tired. Like, I was like, I'm tired. I don't want to think about this anymore. It's just wearisome. I can't understand it. But then look at what he does. Verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I mean, how, how crazy simple is that? Asaph goes, I'm envious, my feet are slipping, I'm doubting the goodness of God, everyone around me seems to prosper, I'm questioning whether all of this was actually worth it or not, it seems like it's in vain to follow God because he's not giving me the good that I think he needs to give me or that I long so desperately for him to give me. And it was all wearisome the more I talked about it or thought about it or questioned it and I couldn't understand. So what did I do? I went into the sanctuary of God. I worshiped, I prayed. I got with other believers and I sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who was and who is and who is to come. I got on my knees and I asked the Lord, Lord, I need your reality. And then look at what happens. Verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, this is what God shows Asaph in the sanctuary. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God." And how much of our lives with the Lord would change if we just understood, man, it is good to be near God. Those who love the Lord, who seek the Lord, lack no good thing. And what is the good thing? It is good to be near God. It is good to be with him. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. There's just a sense in which, in the middle of his envy, Asaph goes to the sanctuary and he looks up 
And he goes, oh yeah, I have God. And I love the beautiful simplicity of that. Like he just shows up and he's like, oh yeah, I have God. I don't have that promotion that my coworker got and I'm kind of jealous of that, but I, I have God. And I, I don't have that relationship that I long for, but I have God. And I don't get to go on that cool vacation to Hawaii, but I have God. And my kids seem to not be doing as great as these person's kids, but I have God. And I don't mean this in like a overly like uh, get over it, you have God kind of way, or like to cheapen your suffering or your struggle. I know in a room this size, myself included, there are unmet desires that hurt. Like just tangibly on the surface, there are things that we are envious of that others have that just, I mean, good things to desire that just hurt. Like relationships that we want or places in life that we long for. There's just like good, good things that we don't have that other people have that just hurt. And so I'm not trying to be like, get over it, you have God. That's not what I'm saying at all. Here's what I'm saying. God is still your portion. He's still your portion. So no, you don't have that thing. And no, I don't have the thing. And it hurts. And it's hard. But God is still your portion. And what it means that he's your portion means he ultimately satisfies every longing that's underneath those things you want and are envious over. So when you see that relationship and you're jealous and you're envious and it's like everybody else has that thing that I don't have, God is your portion. And he loves you and he knows you, and the cravings of your soul that are leading to that desire for that earthly relationship, he offers himself in the midst of that. And so when you look around and you go, man, that person has that title, or that position, or that power, or that status that I want, God is your portion. And he says, hey, I've given you a new identity. You don't need the identity of CEO. You don't need the identity of manager. I've called you son. I've called you daughter. I've given you a forever power, a forever title, citizen of my kingdom. Inheritor of what is Christ. And so what we're called to do is we're called to let those deep desires that drive us into envy actually drive us past the envy to God, who is the true portion, who is the true fulfiller of all the things we long for. Because here's the good news for us. And this is where I kind of head ish towards the close. I said ish. The good news is not just that we get God as our portion, but that God wants to give himself as our portion. And here's why I say that. Exodus 34. This is what God says about himself. That same section where he's giving them the, new, the, the Ten Commandments, this is what he says. He says, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. All right, time out. Jealousy's bad. What's going on here? Envy. Unrighteous jealousy is a corrosive desire to have something that does not belong to you, but there's righteous jealousy. Here's what righteous jealousy is. Righteous jealousy is a loving desire to have something that rightfully belongs to you. Righteous jealousy is a loving desire to have something that rightfully belongs to you, and that is what God has for his people. He has righteous jealousy for his people. Why? Because his people are his. And so God looks at our envy and what happens in our envy where we say, okay, God, I need this thing. I need you to be good in this way. I need this thing. And that thing that we are envious over or jealous over takes the throne of our hearts. It sits on the throne instead of God. And God is a jealous God and says, I will not share the throne. So no, don't be jealous of that person's job. I'm a jealous God. You're mine. No, don't be jealous of that person's relationship. I'm a jealous God. Be mine. 
No, don't be jealous of that person's title or status or position or kids or lot in life or vacation or place to live or whatever you want to fill in the blank. I'm a jealous God. Be mine. And what that means is that he is going to get what is his, namely glory and honor in our lives. He's going to get what is his. You are my people and I'm the best for you. I am your portion. Be mine. That is the invitation of God. His invitation is, hey, I'm going to get the throne. I'm going to root the envy out of your life. I'm more committed to you not being a jealous person than you are. Why? Because I'm jealous for you and you're mine. He's the best thing for us. Here's how Dan Allender, Tremper Longman say it, cry of the soul. Read the book. We're going to quote it like every sermon. Just read it. They say this. It is God's jealous love that both unnerves us and draws us to him. His relentless pursuit, his fierce hatred of any rival, and his incomprehensible willingness to anguish on our behalf captures our heart for his love. Notice this phrase. His jealousy is our shield. God's jealousy is our shield against what? Against temptation, against sin, against jealousy, against envy. His jealousy is our shield. It is our promise of eternal protection and passionate exclusivity. It is our confidence that the divine lover will win his bride. God will not lose. He will not lose. He is a jealous God who longs that our, his people would find their portion in him. And that's why Psalm 34 makes sense. Because Psalm 34 says, Lord, those who seek you lack no good thing. And what is the ultimate good thing? That we would be with him forever. We'd be in his presence. And we'd be able to say with Asaph in Psalm 73, I am continually with the Lord. That's the good news for us. So let me end with this. Just want to give us a few practicals. Just kind of just kind of close up. Just give you some like, okay, what do I do in light of that? Here's who the Lord is. Here's how he's good to me. Let me just give you three real quick. Go ahead and boom, boom, boom. One, two, three. Number one, how do we fight against our envy in light of the jealous God? Let me just give you some tools this week. Number one is worship. Just worship. Do the same thing Asaph does. Go into the sanctuary. Worship. Alone in your car, in the shower, if you sing in the shower, I don't know, in your prayer closet, in the living room, with your community group, at church. Just worship. God, I'm living in unreality. I think I'm missing everything that you're doing in my life. I'm just looking around me. Just reset me to reality. Reset my heart into what is true. Remember God's goodness. That's what worship gets to do. We sing, we pray, we read the Bible as a way of remembering what is true about God. His portion, his goodness to us. Number two, confess confess both to God and to others. And this is going to be a step of discernment. So I'd encourage you bring your community group in, bring your community group leader in, do what you need to do to use wisdom here. Uh, but here's my encouragement to you. One of the easiest ways to push back against envy in your heart towards someone else is to actually bring it to light to that person. Now, wisdom, all right, they got to love Jesus and love you, most likely for it to go well, and wisdom in terms of how you do it, because here's how it goes bad. Uh, often what happens is somebody gets something we want, or someone we want, and we become bitter, and we become jealous, and we do one of two things. Either we pull back from the relationship, and we say, hey, I'm just kind of cutting them off, I'm pulling back, it's too hard to be around them, I just don't want to have anything to do with them, or we do like a half confession, which is really a blame, and I see this a lot in particular, let me talk to our single folks, I see this a lot in particular with dating, where often somebody will cut off a friendship because somebody else starts dating someone, and they say, uh, it's like, hey, we were roommates, we were best friends, and I just can't be your friend anymore. 
And let me just encourage you, um, that is a half confession, because what it's saying is this is your fault when it's really not their fault. But jealousy or envy rather says, hey, I love you, and I'm working on some stuff here, and I need the Holy Spirit, and I need you to love Jesus and love me, so will you just help me as we kind of process all of this together by God's grace in the power of the Holy Spirit together? Does that make sense, half confession versus real? Half confession would say, hey, you bought a Tesla, and so now we're not friends. Full confession would say, you bought a Tesla, and I'm jealous, and that's wrong, and I'm going to try by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and love you. Will you help me? That's the difference between half confession and full confession. And I think thinking about it, using discernment, bringing others in into the light. Number three, real quick, gratitude. Practice of gratitude. Practice of gratitude. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. The song popped in my head. Uh, I think sometimes we like knock cheesy Christian things, but I think some of them are fun and helpful. And we used to sing this song in elementary school where we would uh, sing in Sunday school. We would say, um, Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what? Thank you, I got one. I love that song. Um, and we were like, that's cheesy Christian. But here's the reality. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, what? See what God has done. The practice of gratitude is just simply going, God, what have you done? Man, how quickly I am to move on with life, counting the many sufferings the many real sufferings, the many painful sufferings, and I need to also stop and have the practice five minutes, 10 minutes, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, once a week, whenever, where I just sit before God and go, Lord, what have you done in my life? What are the good things? And not in a a scalable way or a checkout kind of way or like a cheesy, well, it's just going to outweigh the bad, the bad doesn't matter way, but in a deep like, Lord, you are active and working and I believe that, so what have you done? That's what the practice of gratitude invites us to do. With all of this, we entrust ourselves to a faithful God. He has given himself for us. He is jealous for us. He's jealous for his people. So much so, he's so committed to winning his bride that he sent Christ Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. We take communion. So if you uh, have that little cup in front of you or somewhere on the seat, we're going to celebrate and remember communion uh, together. This is a practice the church has done for thousands of years. They set aside when they gather to remember the body and blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask you not to take communion, not because we don't want you to participate or because we don't like you, but because you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ, become a Christian, put your faith in him, repent, trust in Jesus, turn. He's the only way to salvation, the only way to God. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be down front after the gathering. But for all who are in Christ, the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And every time you eat the bread, you are remembering the body of Christ given on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. So church, take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. He said, every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Church, every time you drink from this little cup, you are remembering the blood of Jesus, which washes us clean from sin. I mean, think about it. Washes us clean from every sin, every mistake, every wrong that you have done. This washes us clean. What a beautiful chance to remember that. So church, Take and drink. As the band comes back up and we pray to worship, we'll have folks in the back who'd love to pray with you and for you about anything you've got going on. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good. Man, you are good. And you promise so many times in your word, Lord, that those who seek you 
those who have a pure heart, which we know is given to us in Christ, those who, who search for you, Lord, lack no good thing. God, and I know in a, a room this size, there's a lot of things we would say we long for. God, there's a lot of hurt of unmet expectations. God, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain over things we want so badly and crave and long for and desire, some of us for years, Lord, and there's real hurt and there's real pain. God, and we have no hope in the midst of any of that except for you. God, so I pray we wouldn't be a church that look left to right, that live our lives full of jealousy or envy at what somebody else has or what or who somebody else has or the places they're going or the things they're accruing or the ways that they're living their life or their highlight reel on Instagram. Lord, would you help us be a people that say, if I seek the Lord, I lack no good thing. God, would you root us as a church of contentment? God, would you root us as a church of gratitude? God, would you root us as a church that says, even in the suffering, even in the mourning, even in the pain, even in the grief of unmet expectations and unmet longings, God, you are still the Lord and I lack no good thing. And I don't know what that means. It just hurts. It's painful, but I want to trust you. God, help us to be a church that trusts you. Help us to be a church that finds deep contentment in where you've put us, with who you've put us there with. And you're sovereign over all things. And so we trust you. We want to trust you more. Lord, we want to be like the man in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.